0: If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today.
1: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
2: Am I listening to an episode? Yeah That's amazing I don't know what I'm about to (laughs) hear This is exciting Do I need any prep?
0: Hopefully not
2: So I'm just going to go in? Yeah Okay A destination isn't always a place
0: Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things I'm Neil Innes And I'm Andres Bartos We both live in Barcelona But we're not really from here kind of from everywhere. We're friends, filmmakers, and world-class ramblers. Passport is the show that will take you to the places you've never heard of, we'll introduce you to the people who you would never have otherwise met, and we'll tell you the kind of stories you only hear when you throw away the guidebook. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport.
2: So when Neil and I started making Passport, we wanted to make a show that brought people together. Because really, that's the magical thing about travel, isn't it? You get to learn things, you get to meet people. And here we are, in the middle of a pandemic,
0: right when nobody can travel. But in producing Passport together, we sort of realized that there's no better time to tell our stories. Stay safe and enjoy this episode of Passport. Let's go for it. Los Angeles, California, is a town filled with dreamers. They flocked there from the gold rush to the talkies to the hippie revolution and now the tech industry. L.A. lives and dies on the promise of striking it rich and famous. In this episode of Passport, we take a look at how one dream of stardom came crashing down and altered Los Angeles forever in just 48 hours. The dreamer's name was Charles Manson. He inadvertently created a different L.A., something Joan Didion wrote was the nail in the coffin of the decade of free love. But how much is mythology, and how much is the truth? I sought out people whose lives were influenced by the story of this monster, and the story of Los Angeles. Each person led me to the next. People who could help me try and figure out what Manson can tell us about the city today. I'm Neil Innes. Welcome to Passport. Wow. How's that for an intro? That's a
2: fucking amazing intro. <laughs> <laughs> that Joan Didion quote gave me the goosebumps. <laughs> I'm set like I'm in. I'm, I'm in, I
0: want it. How are you with Los Angeles? You know, I've never been there. Maybe that's good that you've never been there, because then I get to ask you about what you think it's like. Yeah. In the head of somebody that only
2: knows Hollywood, um, I think there's the the LA of the the celebrities and the stars and the tourists, the you know the the Walk of Fame and the Chinese theater and all this stuff. But then there's the, these other LAs that you end up seeing also in movies. You know,
0: I read this great quote by Dorothy Parker. Yeah, she said that Los Angeles is 17 suburbs in search <laughs> of a city. Yes.
2: New York has the the skyscrapers that just dwarf all humanity. Yeah. LA feels like everything's low and just sprawling. There's a friend who lived in a house in LA that had, you know, if you pulled a chandelier, it opened up a secret <laughs> part of the house, like
0: <laughs> properly, like for real. That's LA to me. Well, that's what I'm about to do right now with this story. <laughs> i'm pulling every book in a massive library to try and find the fucking door that's that's what this episode is So remember guys at the end of our story we'll be back with our saved pins these are the top five places we discovered making this episode places that you'll want to explore on your next trip to the city of angels but in the meantime let's go play detective in los angeles I love horror films, just like my dad. I always have, from the time I snuck downstairs to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street on VHS when I was five years old, while my parents were sleeping. When I was growing up, we had a big bookcase at the foot of the stairs in our house in the far north of England. Amongst the door-to-door encyclopedias and videos and magazines, my dad kept a shelf of horror and science fiction novels. And amongst them, there were a few books on true crime and murder, and serial killers. I'm just going to pause for the police cars. (laughs) I can't remember how old I was when I first saw Charles Manson's face. Maybe seven or eight? You know the photo. The police mugshot. It was strange to me, but Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, Sam Berkowitz... To me, they were just other names... A great American myth. A lie. Like Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. But something about Charles Manson stood out. This tiny, bearded, wild-eyed, long-haired man. Only five foot two. Who killed, and even stranger perhaps, convinced people to kill for him. It somehow felt more sinister. More real. So I guess... My fascination with Manson was my dad's to begin with. So let's begin with my dad. i got to ask you, Dad, 1969, you were... 17. So, do you remember the Manson murders happening? Yeah, it wasn't so big in England as it was in America. It was only after, when I got a bit older, that I, that I started to think about it, really. Cause at that time, it was sort of buried in the Vietnam War, you know? When did you start reading about serial killers? That was I'm just trying to that was when I went to, to the merchant navy and I had a, a library on this ship and I found this book in there by a book called Colin Wilson and it was um a history of serial killers. Couldn't stop reading it. It was like that that was probably around about nineteen seventy 1970, nineteen seventy-five. I just um I just found it it was like, you know, why it was meaningless trying to figure out why they've done it, you know, what drives someone to do something like that. Uh, you know, weirdo. A weirdo. Manson was surely that. But I wanted to know what made him. What was the city and life that created this charismatic freak? Just to find out, I would have to go back to Los Angeles in 1969. It's almost impossible to imagine a more impactful decade, although maybe the one we're living in now might take the cake in decades to come. In the ten short years of the 1960s, Hollywood's shining light Marilyn Monroe was found dead of a drug overdose, JFK was elected and assassinated in Dallas, RFK2 in Los Angeles, Martin Luther King in Memphis, the Vietnam War began to rage out of control. The civil rights movement, the Cuban Missile Crisis, man landed on the moon, and LSD had opened up the minds of a younger generation. In Los Angeles, music had exploded into new realms, on and above the Sunset Strip. The Whiskey a go go was seminal in the careers of the Doors and Buffalo Springfield, Love and the Birds. Since the Summer of Love, anyone who was anyone was playing music in and around Laurel Canyon and partying at the whiskey. Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, Frank Zappa, and Captain Beefheart were pushing rock and roll to its limits. Los Angeles was the tip of the spear in a new tripped-out movement in musical history. The whiskey is still there, by the way. 8901 Sunset Boulevard. The film industry was high on the fumes of the counterculture and of Easy Rider. There was a new way of doing things. Hollywood was being taken over by the young. I spoke to a friend of the show, Caroline Mosser, an architect, historian, and L.A. lifer about the city at the time.
3: Los Angeles. My mother was born in Los Angeles. My mother's parents came to Los Angeles like 1919. So the city changed so fast. It grew and grew and grew. And one of the interesting things about Los Angeles is the geography. It's a huge city. People didn't rebuild. They just moved further west or moved further out. And cars were easy and cheap. So the city has these layers in it—physical layers. Um, you have people living next to one another who are in different circles uh how the geography really makes uh i guess it's probably true of waterfront cities but for here it really has a lot to do with the social life too and the the way different social groups interact
0: and there was a new group a subculture who were defining the end of a decade the hippies were searching for something new a more open hedonistic life with freedom and love first on the list
3: we, it wasn't as if the hippies were scary. They were just part of our lives. They were just the, uh, you may not have interacted with them, but you shopped with them, you, they were all around. It wasn't something that was scary, particularly, although a little remote, because of the drugs.
0: It would be these people, these hippies, that Charles Manson would eventually infiltrate and hijack, amassing more than 100 followers by the end of 1968 at Spawn Ranch, a 55-acre movie set and horse farm.
3: I mean, so far as Manson's concerned, you know, those ranches that he lived in, um, both of them, they're places that you, you drive past, that you go around. They're part of the city, not the active part of the city. But when I was a kid, we learned how to ride horses, and it wasn't that far from there.
0: It's been half a century since Manson ordered his followers to murder the residents of two separate homes. One on Cielo Drive, a house which Manson knew well, and one on Waverley Drive, a house Manson also knew, east of Hollywood, near Griffith Park. Uh,
3: the Manson murders were during the summer, and we would go to a summer camp that was on the um, grounds of Westlake School, now Harvard Westlake School, in what's called Homeby Hills, and my parents lived near there. And they would occasionally have summer, hot summer night sleep outs on the field there. I've been told, and I sort of vaguely remember, that we heard the screams that night and that we we were awakened by them, all these kids in sleeping bags on the field.
0: Now, 50 years after the murders, Manson is everywhere again, books, films, television. But it's remarkable that they all stem from just two horrific nights in August of 1969, when the cult leader ordered his followers to murder the residents of two different homes. Manson's followers killed seven people over those two nights. They killed more before and after. Speculation continues to this day about why. but we found something that isn't often discussed. And it has everything to do with why he was in Los Angeles in the first place. Charles Manson wanted to be a rock star. Charles Maddox was born in Ohio in 1934. His father left before he was born and he was renamed by his mother after the new suitor in her life, Miles Manson. He was in and out of correctional institutes from the time he was 13. Probation, fleeing states, sexual assault. From 1957 to 1967, the end of that time, Manson had spent most of his life behind bars. In jail, he did learn one potentially positive skill. He learned how to play guitar. So did Manson have musical aspirations as a kid?
4: Yeah, no, I mean all the I mean anything I've seen suggests that the, the music piece doesn't come to him until he's in prison.
0: This is Jeffrey Melnick. He's a professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. His book, Creepy Crawling, is all about the Manson family and their effect on popular culture.
4: The guy who taught him to play guitar was um, Alvin Karpis, who was a, who had been a member of Mob Barker's gang in the 1930s. So he was this real, like, Depression-era outlaw who was in the same prison uh, as Manson and, and taught him, you know, some rudiments of, of playing the guitar. He learns not only how to make music, but he learns a little bit about the music business from his friend Phil Kaufman, who ends up being... Important in the LA scene, he's the manager for Graham Parsons and has his hands in a lot of other stuff when he gets out of jail.
0: Phil Kaufman was serving time with Manson for smuggling pot. He was a tour manager and a producer. He would later have become embroiled in his own story of weirdness, when he stole the body of singer songwriter Graham Parsons and burned it at the Joshua Tree National Monument. But Manson would have never heard of Parsons, or the birds, or anyone. His musical tastes were already outdated.
4: He's not hearing Elvis. You know, he's not hearing uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. He's hearing, you know, Bing Crosby and Frankie Lane, you know, some more crooner um, kind of thing. So when you hear him um, singing in the late 60s, he doesn't sound like a rock and roll guy. He doesn't sound like you might expect a guy of his generation to sound because he just sort of missed what was happening on the radio, what was happening, you know, in uh, in the clubs and so on.
0: So Manson gets out of jail at the age of 33. He heads first to San Francisco and he uses his master manipulating skills and his bad guitar playing to lure young women high on the hippie movement and all from disastrous upbringings by presenting himself as an almost religious figure. Before 1967 was done, Manson and a small group of followers landed in Los Angeles. Even though the entire world knows Hollywood, in some capacity or another, it's a place that divides opinion amongst the people who have been there, or even those who live there. It's a place to write your own narrative, whether that's good, bad, or crazy. It's a DIY city, down to the street level. Here's Caroline again
3: you don't really see the city until you get off of the boulevards. When you turn left, you turn right. And that's those Raymond Chandler houses. Or you go to Glendale. You turn off the streets. There are these little bungalows and people have been in them forever. And they are, by their nature, they're sort of dark. The nature of these bungalows is the low slung roof and a deep porch through which you enter into a dark, cool interior. And I think it's more than just a metaphor. And we have a lot of hills and you turn in off the hills and the the streets get narrower and there are steps. There are whole places where you cannot get to the houses without walking up flights of stairs. Uh, if you walk up those steps, you go into, you know, a whole little uh, enclave. And all of a sudden you find yourself on a street which just, you know there secrets.
0: Caroline nails Los Angeles. For me, this, this idea, this is the city. The little streets... The alleyways, the backlots, the old ranches, the hills filled with winding roads and remote houses. You can find secrets there, or you can hide them. For somewhere so huge, you have to get a little out of the way to know what it really is. It just feels like it's in the spirit of the place. To really find the city, to use a Hollywood term, you have to go behind the scenes.
2: The thing that I find interesting is looking at something like the Manson murders that you have in your head somehow, most people do, through the lens of the city. I don't think I've heard that before. The description of the houses, the way people were living, arriving to a town in that period of time, the ranch. Yeah. And then there's these sub layers that are really interesting, which is, there's a fascination with this because there's... We have a sneaking suspicion that our relationship to show business and to this whole world is not right. <laughs> yeah. And that somehow he, this whole story points that out in a way that makes us uncomfortable, but also makes us attracted to it at the same time. Yeah. There's something about LA arriving to a town where the dreams can become reality, that it becomes a nightmare that is it seems it fits somehow. It seems like the right kind of story for that place. Yeah. The end of the crew cut and the gray suit, the end of the hippie, and then the beginning of our madness here. There's that, that high watermark line in fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the Huntress Thompson book where the, the wave broke and rolled back. There was a, there was a hope and a, um, a driving force that we were going to move towards goodness that the hippie people that were in the left and people that had come from the summer of 68 and had fought a revolution and had were changing what their parents had done and were looking towards a new world that that would end in this darkness and in this and in altamont it shattered this utopia this vision for the future in a way that left everybody kind of um you know at at a
0: loss what do you do after that yeah it was just such a downer it was like It was like the end of every great 70s movie that came after it. (laughs) And it gave gave Nixon a reason to, you know, to start the war on drugs and, you know, to kind of just dirty hippie scum, hippies use the back door or like all of that sort of stuff that came right out of that. Jeffrey Melnick put me in touch with Jim DeRogatis, one of the finest music critics around. He's even written books on music critics. His book, Let It Blurt on Lester Bangs, is incredible. He's the host of Sound Opinions on WBZ Chicago. So who better to talk to about the music of an infamous serial killer? But first, I asked him about L.A.
5: It's a nice place to visit. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to live there. Uh, that having been said, there is a real Los Angeles. Uh, it just, uh, you have to kind of dig for it. Yeah, you have to get out into the neighborhoods. It's very much uh, Chinatown, you know, the, uh, the Polanski film. You know, there is a cool, old, funky, weird Los Angeles. A lot of those clichés about L.A. are true. It is sort of uh, both uh, a place where dreamers go and also a place of last resort. You know, if you look at, you know, Jack Kerouac and the Beats, I mean, the West Coast is where people who were losers on the run or trying to find something wind up and uh, there's nowhere else to go. You know, then it's just the ocean.
0: So is this what happened to Manson? Is this what he is? Another desperate, egotistical, insecure would-be star arriving
5: in L.A. He knew that Los Angeles was America's capital of con and that much of this music was a way for him to uh, perpetuate his cons, right? You know, he was a master uh, manipulator of people. Uh, He said he had two tools to build his family. One was he could tell the people, in particular the girls, uh, who would break down easiest. Right? He went after people who had damaged lives and trouble. And number two, he had the music. You know, So what's interesting to me is uh, how little people have really looked at the role that music played in the story of the family, both Manson's own music Which, I mean, look, you know, this is this is sort of like what punk rock tells us, what all the great subcultures in musical history tell us. Music is a way to unite a community of misfits who don't fit in anywhere else. It's a secret code. It brings people together. And so you think of the family singing Charlie's songs, backing him up around the campfire. You know, there's a power in that. And, and people are coming to Los Angeles, young people, who are often abused at home or misunderstood. They're running away in search of something, they don't even know what, and they find this charismatic charlatan and con man who takes them in, and music is part of that appeal. There's no two ways about it.
0: Manson got deep into the scene pretty quickly in the hills outside of Hollywood. He had reconnected with Phil Kaufman, who he met in prison. Kaufman had given Manson a name at Universal Records and had even set him up for some auditions, but to no avail. Manson choked. When Kaufman got out of jail, he headed to LA to stay with Manson. And this whole fame thing had started moving. Kaufman recorded Lie, The Love and Terror Cult on a $7 tape recorder, a mishmash of a sampler which wouldn't be released until Manson was behind bars. Here's Jeffrey again.
4: Yeah, that's the crazy or shocking thing is how quickly he plunges right to the heart of things, right? He's this guy who's just been out of prison, you know, for a little over a year, comes to L.A. And within months, he's with people who are, you know, top, top of the game in in the music and the film industry, largely through a couple of contexts that he makes just by accident. You know, the story usually has it that two women in the family get picked up hitchhiking by Dennis Wilson. And that kind of opens up this whole you know sort of multi-month uh relationship that the family has with you know with wilson and with uh, greg jacobson
0: dennis wilson of the beach boys picked up a couple of manson's followers hitchhiking around malibu one day after wilson started talking about the maharishi they ended up telling him about charlie their own guru later that night wilson came home from a recording session to find manson and a dozen young men and women at his house they stayed for months. Eventually, Wilson moved out, but paid a heavy cost to keep the cult at his house. But Wilson also saw promise in Manson's songs.
4: They're meeting, all, you know, virtually all the major musicians, you know, in and around L.A. And they, there's all kinds of interesting exchanges happening, let's put it that way. Um, Manson is really interested in cultivating these relationships for his own ambitions, but he recognizes that he's got to sort of like play the game offer something up. And so he offers up this, this vision of kind of untrammeled access to the women of the family. There's a very exploitive aspect to this that go, probably goes without saying. You know, by early in, in um, his time there, he's totally tapped in to some of the major power players in L.A.,
0: Wilson recorded with Manson, with his brother, Brian. He even recorded one of Charlie's songs with the Beach Boys, Ceased to Exist, later retitled Never Learn Not to Love. Manson wasn't too happy about that. Weirdly, it would become one of the pivotal moments in his life, because the next person he met is maybe the most important key to this story. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting
2: new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up.
3: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why.
0: To a record producer named Terry Melcher.
4: Yeah, man, I think the meeting with Terry Melcher, and that's why I, you know, I spend so much time on thinking about Terry Melcher. um, He's got all the sauce, you know, he's, he's the son of Doris Day.
0: That's right. Manson is set up with the son of Doris Day, the quintessential all-American girl next door
4: as i say in the book you know doris day is literally a synonym for white bread um in american culture and 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 you don't get any more kind of mainstream successful um than that and terry melcher's her son he obviously benefit from you know, being her son and to help him get in the business, I'm sure. But he goes and and by the late 60s, he is a major producer. Um, you know, he's worked with the Birds and uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders and a lot of other folks. And Melcher comes out to Spawn Ranch and Melcher arranges for Manson to come and try very unsuccessfully to cut a demo. Um, he gets some real indications that he's in the game, you know, that he's um, making the right moves, that he's got a shot.
0: Melcher agreed to an audience with Manson at Spahn Ranch. But after a few days, the wannabe rock star and cult leader got word that Melcher was passing on the record deal. Manson, upset at Wilson for the Beach Boys cover and at Melcher for shattering his ego, must have really hit the wall. Could that fleeting record deal have been the code to defuse the bomb that destroyed the 60s?
5: It's entirely possible. You know, um, I mean, that that's, you know, that that's a a big speculation. Right. Um, And as a journalist, I, I, I like to deal in like facts, you know, but I mean, let's face it, crazier. And in some cases, people just as evil, minus the murder then Manson have been embraced by this industry because there's money to be made. And isn't that what Tommy is about? Isn't that what Ziggy Stardust is about? Isn't that what Pink Floyd's The Wall is about? And in each case, you have people who were in the glare of that global fame money spotlight, you know, knowing that there was a dark side, right? And they're, they're portraying it as observers and as fantasy Uh, you know, Manson could well have lived it. You know, what would he have done with a major label budget?
0: I was beginning to feel like I was getting closer to something about Manson and his true impact on Los Angeles. For me, watching California from afar means watching Hollywood, watching the films of L.A., one of the truly cinematic cities in the world, the storytelling city. Could Manson have affected storytelling too? If only I could find someone who knew what it was really like to be inside Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, Guinevere Turner.
1: The, the reason that the West Coast of America exists is because of the gold rush. And the legacy of the gold rush lives in Los Angeles. Still, to this day, people are coming to Los Angeles to strike it rich but to strike it rich fame wise and so there's still this kind of thirsty desperate vibe to every fucking waiter server that you see um, is all you can tell they're there to strike it rich in the in the gold mine that is the entertainment industry
0: Gwen is best known for writing the screenplay to Brett Easton Ellis' controversial novel American Psycho, the go-to film about a charismatic serial killer. Guinevere is a writer, producer, director and actor who has made much work, including three incredible films with director Mary Harron. Their most recent is called Charlie Says, and it looks rather uniquely at the almost impossible redemption for the imprisoned women who killed for the cult leader. Her script and Mary's film also really get to the musical matter at heart.
1: I just was trying to figure out who the fuck he was and what motivated him. And it really, really came down to the fact that he wanted to be a fucking rock star. That's what he wanted. And that is why he went to L.A. And that is really the catalyst for all of this legendary horror is a man who wanted to be a rock star and saw that it was not going to happen and then panicked and had to create a new set of urgent concerns for his followers so that they wouldn't leave him because who the fuck would that guy be if he was just a guy?
0: Manson's urge to create a community to his own ends in Los Angeles was his idea of reinvention. He wanted to be the petty criminal who became a rock and roll singer, a leader. Gwen knows a lot about this because here's the kicker. She knows exactly what it was like to be in a cult. A cult ran by a musician.
1: Music was uh, happiness. Like Music was where we lived everything, like the entire fucking cult was founded on his music.
0: And he was Mel Lyman. Guinevere's excellent piece for the New Yorker, My Childhood in a Cult, mentions LSD, government issued cheese, and a repurposed school bus with the words Venus or bust painted on both sides. The family were told by Lyman that the world would end on the 5th of January in 1974. At which point, they would all be taken to Venus on a UFO. Yeah. But one of the things that struck me was the honesty of the nuts and bolts of being in a community like this.
1: The thing is, like, you don't, like, spend your days in a cult, like, staring at a wall, being whipped by a belt, you know what I mean? Like, literally, you have to do things, like you know laundry and you know there's just so much else going on because it's ultimately it's a family and it's a family in the way that we i hope understand families to be which is like sometimes you're just like oh can you hand that to me like did everyone fold the laundry like whatever whatever you know
0: Sure, you gotta run the shop
1: and it's a big fucking shop it was a lot of people
0: Gwen's experience growing up in a cult put her in a unique position to understand what Charlie offered people, people who had come out to Los Angeles to reinvent themselves and find purpose. I asked Gwen about the reasons for Manson living on in LA. Why does he still feel so relevant?
1: I mean, it's a question I've answered in a billion ways and have found new perspectives on. There's a um, surgence of true crime, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Within that, this is one of the ultimates. And the seed of that, if I can even find it, is the fact that Charles Manson was, he was a showman.
0: The 1960s promising so much and then taking it away, Manson's followers were given something to believe in no matter how crazy it was.
1: And here's the question that I always ask myself, and I continue to ask myself, who would you be in 1969 if you were 19 years old and and the JFK had been assassinated, MLK had been assassinated, Vietnam was going on, like, who the fuck would you be? Maybe you would follow this man because he was like, you know fucking insane con man.
0: On August the 8th, 1969, Tex Watson, Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel drove to 10050 Cielo Drive, where they murdered Abigail Folger, Wojciech Vorkowski, Stephen Parent, Jay Sebring, and Sharon Tate. On the 10th, Manson, upset with how the killings had gone, took the four, plus Leslie Van Houten and Steve Grogan, to 3301 Waverley Drive, where Watson, Krenwinkel and Van Houten killed Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Why did he choose these houses? He knew them. He had visited both before. The previous occupant of the Cielo Drive house, Was the man who had stepped on Manson's dream? The record producer, Terry Melcher. I was starting to feel like I understood a little bit more about why Manson was in Los Angeles and why he was able to draw in this rabid group of followers. But there was a piece of the story I was still not getting. Why does it matter to everyone 50 years later? Why does the Manson story resonate? And why now, more than ever?
6: You know, it could be argued that the crime history of Hollywood slash Los Angeles is, um, you know, maybe its most distinctive uh, and even attractive uh, element.
0: I was put in touch with Duke Hanny, an encyclopedia of darkness and wonder in the great city of L.A.,
6: uh, hey, let's all just admit that this is what we find fascinating. You know, this, this, this is Hollywood. This is interesting.
0: Hollywood myth and legend is Duke's fascination. He was one of the gold rushers, so to speak, an actor who headed out west to make it in the big time and ended up penning more than 20 feature film scripts and three excellent books. His latest, Death Valley Superstars, is born out of the promise and tragedy of Los Angeles.
6: So in Hollywood, obviously uh from the beginning, um, this town has manufactured sex symbols. And um that's precisely what you had um in Sharon Tate. The new Hollywood blonde, and then you know, she was murdered in what seemed to be a, a rather ritualistic manner. So in, in that sense, it was a perfect um, combination, you know, uh, of sex and death. And also a crime that was perfectly of its moment. So it really crystallized something, I think, about, you know, the late 60s. I
0: asked Duke if Manson had an effect on L.A., especially how the media looks at
6: crime. Well, I think that Manson had a profound effect on uh, American psychology, the killing of Sharon Tate and and the killing uh, the following night of the La Biancas, which the public correctly tied to the murders, although curiously, the LAPD did not. Uh, but the public just immediately assumed that, oh, my God, there's a rampage underway. And so uh, dog sellers were sold out of uh, Dobermans and, and German Shepherds overnight. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah.
0: How do you how do you know that? What do you like yeah, look,
6: you, look look like, it up. I mean uh, I mean you know people, I mean, there was just a run on like guard dogs and um firearms. No, it's true.
0: I did look it up. It is true. In LA Magazine, October 1969, Merton Roberts wrote that he had overheard women in the local supermarket comparing not hairstyles or washing powders, but door locks. Residents of Bel Air and Beverly Hills rushed out to buy state-of-the-art security systems. It was a nation panicked by Manson and by the media. And then Duke starts talking about the truth. He was telling me about the pain he felt about a fact he got wrong in his book. A fact about boob jobs. What could be more L.A. than that?
6: I said X number of Playboy Center Falls had a boob job. and Then I found out, oh, one of them actually had, you know, but... <laughs> I mean, they're all you're
0: the the last of the great fact checkers.
6: (laughs) I but I really am. I'm really, really very, very, um, very insistent on uh, fidelity to the truth. And and I think it's really reckless of people um, to just speculate. I mean, that's all we have, sort of, at this point. I mean, the news is just pure speculation.
0: In the same LA magazine piece from 1969, Roberts asked the question. Is this new sense of public terror real or overblown to sell newspapers and magazines? Is it just to elect politicians who prey on fantasy
6: and fear? I mean, these are people who, who don't believe in facts or they believe in, you know, muddying the facts. And, um, you know, and, and, and now we, we just have, you know, millions upon millions of people who, who do exactly that. They just, they, they're out there running around on the web, just spreading dis, disinformation
0: right then, something hit me. In all of the interviews I conducted, every single person had touched on the state of today's politics, on the new media, on now, on the fashion of cults, and then, exasperated, had gone back to Manson. It all related then to now in very similar ways.
3: I think there's a real... um physical fear of the other now. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety. People are frightened about moving. They're frightened about people moving in. They're frightened about um, density and who are these people. And then it's a new group of people. It's not a knowable group of people.
0: Despite the way we often romanticize the time, the 60s were unstable, uncertain, full of fear, full of racism, mistrust, and a culture war. The tumult created extreme outcomes. Dreams soared or were killed. And in Los Angeles, movies and music became a way to try and express those fears. Manson was anxious. He was paranoid. He was a racist. He wanted a race war. What he called helter-skelter. Here's Jim Regattas with something else I hadn't thought about. About then, and now...
5: Mavis Staples told me once the KKK knew all of the studio musicians at Stax Volt and they always got a free pass. The KKK loved the music. <laughs> they hated the people because they had black skin. You know, you need to understand these this this music is made by human beings. They happen to be black. You know, or or today we could say gay or trans yeah. or they came over the wall
0: With that, I realized it wasn't the fact that Manson had been this terrifying, singular bomb that destroyed a decade. It wasn't even that Manson created a new LA. It was that a new LA had created him. Joan Didion was wrong. Manson hadn't destroyed anything but the lives of his followers and the people they murdered. He wasn't the end of anything. To quote Jeffrey Melnick, he was the beginning. He started a reckoning of everything that the 60s meant. He was the beginning of a new kind of obsession with celebrity that spread through music, news, film, politics and television in the decades after him and probably in the decades to come. The pop culture influence of Manson in music alone goes through Neil Young, Black Sabbath, Nine Inch Nails, The Beach Boys, The Beatles, The Mamas and the Papas, The Fugs, Red Cross, Sonic Youth, Guns N' Roses, NWA, The Ramones, The Flaming Lips, Devendra Banhart, and on and on and on. Without Manson, there may have been a very different independent cinema scene in the 1970s. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Wicker Man, The Hills Have Eyes, The Omen, Suspiria, Halloween, all classic horror films built on a fear of a family, either constructed or real. Manson planted a seed, this fear of the other, and it was broadcast live on national television in his trials and splashed all over the papers and all over the country. Manson supercharged the press. There might not be a mark on the city of LA itself, not one that you can see anyway, The house on Cielo Drive was eventually razed to the ground. Even the address was wiped off the map. The perfect crime for its time and place undoubtedly cemented the world's fascination with true crime. But more than that, the Manson family murders upended a view of the new, the transgressive, the different, the forward-thinking, and they set an ideal of openness and freedom that the 1960s brought they set that back further than anyone could have imagined. And that's the thing that's still reverberating around Los Angeles, around America and, to be honest, around the world. And what about his music? Well, it's not very good. I was talking to myself
5: to see If I was listening to myself I know And the feelings that I have it's real And then I climb into your mind
6: Where the aim. I mean, obviously, he was not a talent on a, on on you know on a, on an epic scale. He's, he was no Bob Dylan. He was not Chris Christopherson.
1: What do I think about his music? I, I think it's, you know, derivative at best.
6: And I cry through the
5: night's mind and I keep on laughing. In my bed cause I know as long as I love you, your love will be true. You've true. Oh, Charlie is a solipsistic, insane, charismatic, barely talented con artist. And no, I think the music is pretty awful. I am there
0: forever. There's there's a story that Duke believes which is that after the the Tate murder Manson and some other followers went back to the house and they and they planted things so the house on cielo drive was being rented um by tate and roman polanski the director there is a crime scene photo of sharon tate's bags by the front door she'd been filming in london she went to rome she was eight months pregnant so she couldn't fly so roman polanski put her on a boat so her bags arrived on the day of the murder so this crime scene photograph shows trunks you know yeah um they're stacked on top of each other but they're staggered by the cases there's a pair of uh, reading glasses eyeglasses these glasses were from spawn ranch where the Manson family lived and they were used to magnify the sun to start fires so five years later six years later roman polanski is back in la makes chinatown right he does he does a full rewrite on robert towns script Mm -hmm. Where he punches the whole thing up. And in it, he puts in a scene where Jack Nicholson finds a pair of eyeglasses in the pond. Yeah. Bad for glass. Cracks the whole case open. Bad for glass.
2: (laughs) The, I think, Japanese uh, gardener. Yeah. You find this whole thing out about the salt water that's in the pond, and in the pond, there's the glasses that crack the case open.
0: He also rewrote the last scene. um, Faye Dunaway was supposed to live. Mm. So he rewrote it to have this beautiful blonde brutally killed, mm. for there to never be an answer mm. for, for, <laughs> for Giddies and for him. Wow. And that's how I feel at the end of the story. <laughs> Just forget it. It's fucking it's Chinatown. <laughs>
2: So each week on Passport, we tell you a new amazing story from a different country, from a different city, and from a different perspective.
0: The places we discover on each trip often help shape our story. So if you've loved this week's episode, here are our saved pins.
2: These are the places which stuck in our mind. The best recommendations from the locals and from our story.
0: So on your next trip to the sunny but dark city of angels, be sure to check these out. We'll have all the links in our show notes. Here we go.
2: Our first safe pin is an obvious choice, but a fantastic one. A staple for L.A. dark tourism. The dearly departed tours have been called L.A.'s most loved cultural institution. And the tours that Scott Michael and his team offer show a really shady side to the sunniest of cities. And their helter-skelter tour is
0: obviously the one you want. Number two. Surely one of the greatest hippie hangouts of all time, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go is still going strong. They have bands and jam nights almost every day of the year, and with The Doors, Janis Joplin, motley crew, and Guns N' Roses gracing the stage there over the years, you know there's some darkness in those walls. So our third is a classic that opened in
2: 1931. There's plenty of Mexican food in LA, but this one is a classic. El Coyote, or El Coyote, is world-famous for its margaritas, and they also do some mean enchiladas, tacos, and tamales. This place has got the right amount of kitsch factor and local regulars to make it a really cool stop in L.A. For a little extra historical kick, ask for the Sharon Tate booth. After all, that's where she ate her last meal.
0: Number four. J.D. Healy and Kathy Schultz opened the beautifully named Museum of Death in 1995. They house the world's largest collection of serial killer artwork, antique funeral ephemera, Manson Family memorabilia, and way more, if you've got the stomach for it. Apparently, people faint there quite often.
2: Okay, lastly, our fifth pin is not a stop per se, but it's one that can help you find many more. So, log on and check out the amazing CreepyLA.com. It's a treasure trove for dark tourists in Los Angeles with hundreds of maps, including haunted houses, death sites, and strange historical murder sites. This one will help you save many, many pins of your own.
0: All right, guys, have fun with those, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Passport Podcast. Stay safe. Bye bye
2: A new episode is coming your way next Tuesday morning.
0: We're going to take you to one of America's richest
2: towns. An idyllic Wild West haven where the 1% ski in the winter and
0: talk tech in the summer. It's a perfect example of the American dream.
1: Jackson Hole does have this Wild West history where it's just you on your homestead. (laughs) But Jackson Hole is not the Wild West.
2: (laughs) It sure ain't. This Jackson Hole
0: is in China. This is the story of how a luxury town in the USA became a luxury town in the PRC, a cloned version of one of the richest towns in America. What happens if
2: you take a place and clone it? Yeah. What does that mean? I love it.
0: From Frequency Machine... This is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. This week's episode of Passport was written, produced, and edited by me. Huge thanks to Caroline Mosser, Jeffrey Melnick, Jim DeRogatis, Juquini, Guinevere Turner, and my dad for helping along the trail. We'll put some links to those wonderful people and their work in the show notes. All of the amazing music on this episode was created by my good friend and genius Nick Turner. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kozneski. stacy Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Abby Jelanski are hard drinking gumshoe detectives on a stakeout somewhere just outside of Los Angeles. They also executive produced the show, which is hosted by myself and the glorious Andres Bartos.